This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. As you know, this podcast is a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network. But forget all that. Intelligent speech is coming. Oh my God. You need to go buy tickets while they're still an early bird special. Normal price is 30. Right now it's 20 and it will be until the start of June. So act now. If you use the checkout code W2W at checkout, you, this you, will get 10% off and I'll get a little kickback myself, which is, which is kind of nice. So listen, everybody go out there and support me in multiple levels by buying tickets right now. I should say I'm running the conference this year and oh my God, I'm excited. I am so excited. So this is going to be great and you should all buy tickets. Oh, keynotes. We've got Jamie Jeffers of the British History Podcast. Eh, that's pretty cool. We've got Jennifer Dassel of the Art Curious Podcast. She's great. So you definitely want to come. And very excitingly, and this is like, this isn't even on the website yet. Rex Factor has signed on as our third keynote. So that's going to be Graham and Ali both doing a keynote together. There's also, um, there, there may be some other things that these keynotes do. And we've got a bunch of other great shows that are signed up. 35 by my estimate, you gotta come. It's hours and hours and hours of entertainment for 20 bucks right now. And unlike last year, it will be recorded and the recordings will be available to people who buy tickets this time because we're using Zoom this time. Just, you, you gotta come. Okay, on with the show. Today we have another five patrons whose deeds for the kingdom make them worthy of iron and praise. And I will just say that this five brings us up to date. First up, we have Chris, who shall be known from henceforward as Sir Chris, the Johnny Appleseed of Decorative Laminate. Up next, we have Name Redacted 174950, who shall henceforward be known as Mr. Whiskers. Jason shall be known from this day to several future days as Duke Jason, champion of the 2008 Royal Scullery Maid competition. Chiron shall be known from hereafter as Marquis Chiron, the reasonably priced memory foam mattress of the kingdom. Last but not least, we have Carl, who shall be known from henceforward as Lord Iron the Carl-Headed. One quick editorial note before we move on. Patron Jerome, I had actually given him a different name in a previous episode, but he'd actually requested the name Jerome the Little Prince of the Over-the-Counter Reformation, which is a great name, and I just missed it. So, my screw-up, Jerome, Little Prince of the Over-the-Counter Reformation, welcome to the club. <laughs> and uh one more just for the road Th this next person is only a one dollar level patron and so they're not at the level where i give them a snarky regnal name 
but their Patreon handle is Kelly and the Reformed Bust of Lenin, which is just hilarious. Thank you to all my donors and patrons for helping to keep the show going. And if you would be interested in joining their surried ranks, head to the website, Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast.weebly.com. The link is in the show notes, whatever, and go to the support page, or you can go to the store page and buy a t-shirt, or you can just look around. Thank you to everybody for donating and the future donors, and thank you for listening. Now, before we get started today, I need to issue a correction, and it's sort of a compound correction because this kind of just keeps rolling. But John, who is a patron and a listener, got in touch to let me know in a very polite but jovial email that I had messed up with the Henrys again. And this is absolutely true. I'll just read going to read the two pertinent paragraphs of the email because he says it fine. You said words to the effect that Henry II's daughter was Matilda and that she was married to Stephen and that the period after her was known as the Anarchy. Sorry, but wrong, wrong, wrong. Podcast footnote. John is right, right, right that I was wrong, wrong, wrong. End podcast footnote. Matilda was the daughter of Henry I, obviously. Stephen was her cousin and became king instead of her despite the pledges made on two occasions by him and other magnates. She challenged this, and they fought a long-drawn-out civil war. This period is known as the Anarchy, which only ended when Stephen acknowledged that his successor would be Matilda's son, Henry, by her second marriage, her first being to the Holy Roman Emperor. Her second husband was Geoffrey of Anjou. Matilda's son was Henry of Anjou, later Henry II. So Henry II was Matilda's son and became the first Plantagenet King of England. So, to review, Matilda was Henry I's daughter, and her son was Henry II. She was not married to Stephen, she was married to Geoffrey, and part of the reason that everyone opposed her was because she was initially married to a guy who was the Holy Roman Emperor, and then, then Geoffrey of Anjou was slightly more acceptable, but was French, so it was still an issue, except, you know, that all the British people were French at this point. Anyway, the point is, I did mess up. I was speaking very quickly. I was writing very quickly in a podcast footnote about something that wasn't the main point of the episode, but I still somehow just keep messing up these Henrys, which is pretty bad because there's a couple Henrys in today's episode. So I really need to get my Henry game on point. Anyway, thank you so much to John for pointing that out. I am so, so sorry that I messed Henry up again. Of all the kings in Europe, I don't know why I have trouble with those two. But anyway. Point is, that's the story, and let's just get started with the episode. Theophano carried on the government with great firmness and decision. That she was gifted, everyone knew. The strength of will and of character that she developed was a revelation. To use the words of Thietmar of Merseburg, she led a model life a thing rare among the Greeks, and watched with truly manly power over the welfare of her son and of her kingdom, humbling the proud and exalting the humble. Among the proud may be reckoned Hugo Capet, who, to the exclusion of the last Carolingians, had swung himself upon the throne of France. He sought but never gained Theophano's recognition, and at last began to plot with the Greeks to drive the Germans out of southern Italy. In 988, Theophano went to Rome and conducted herself in every way as its ruler. She went so far as to call herself the emperor in her charters, 
which were dated from the year of her accession. In Rome and Ravenna, she held her court and presided over them in person. Her officials were even sent into the patrimony of Peter. Great things were to be hoped for from such a woman had she lived. But on the eve of a struggle with Hugo, while Germany was being harassed by new disturbances among the Wends and in Bohemia, she passed away. From the History of Germany in the Middle Ages by Ernest F. Henderson. Quote read by Sarah Tsinkshoffala of the Rejects and Revolutionaries podcast about American history. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story. From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning. Greetings, my name is Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, the Wars of the Reformation. This is episode 84, The Atonians. Over the last two main episodes, we discussed medieval kingship in terms of the things that made a king good or bad. This was basically a mixture of Christian and Roman documentary ideas blended up with Germanic oral traditions. Kingship of this era was elective, but there was no formal process, and the early years of a king's reign could easily see things go wrong. It's a good idea to remember these factors as we move forward, because today we're going to begin the narrative background of the investiture controversy for realsies now. This is, of course, the main subject of this season of episodes. The investiture controversy was, as I have said in the introductory episode, a conflict between the German emperors of the Romans and the popes in the city of Rome. We left off the story of these two offices two seasons ago, when we ended with the story of Otto I, whose reign ended in 973, 86 years before the start of our story. I now need to bring us up to 1059 to start our story, so we all understand what's happening, but I really don't want to get bogged down in the details, which is, you know, probably a little late to develop that fear, but anyway. Point is, I'm going to basically try and speedrun the history of the German Empire of the Romans in three episodes, which corresponds to the three dynasties of the empire in this period. God help me. Then I will take a moment to talk about the status of the Pope in the Middle Ages before speedrunning the story of the Popes. I'm not sure how much detail I'm going to go into with that. But anyway, that's the plan. For now, let's talk about sources. My sourcing here is pretty light, actually, because this is a speedrun. You should assume all the previous sources that I've mentioned in the past, notably Chris Wickham, but the main source that I'm going to be consulting for this is actually very old. History of Germany in the Middle Ages by Ernest F. Henderson has the unique benefit of being a high-level survey written in 1921. Normally, I would not see these things as benefits, but in this case, it means that it is in public domain and thus free on Kindle and Nook. As with many historians of the era, it's a light read, well-paced, and extremely convinced of the possibilities of the new scientific methods of history to discern truth from the sources. Needless to say, take its conclusions in this context if you read it with a big ol' helping of salt. That said, for my purposes, it was perfect, and uh, a nice just refresher, jog to the head, that kind of thing. Since my goal here was simply to just get down the main events and structure of these dynasties, I will also cop, in this case, to the use of Wikipedia. It is way easier to just search Wikipedia to figure out that Otto II fought Denmark in 974 rather than 964 versus going through a book, even an ebook, to do that same level of fact-checking. 
And look, no one is going into Wikipedia and maliciously changing the dates of Otto II's military misadventures in order to trip up one podcaster and a handful of bored office workers. That's just not how internet pranks work. One further note before we begin. When I first planned out this show, there were not any other podcasts out there that were covering this period, which is part of why I've gone into such detail on the background of my podcast on the early modern period. Nowadays, I'm lucky to have some very talented colleagues that I can point you to if you want more detail on this period. Notably, when it comes to anything Pope-related, you have Pontifax and the History of the Papacy podcasts. They may not be to our time period yet, but Pontifax will be within this year of 2022 or 2023. So by the time we get too far ahead, you know, you'll be able to go to Pontifax for at least a, a, their version of a speedrun <laughs> on this stuff. On the secular ruler side, there is the German History Podcast, the French History Podcast, Rex Factor, the History of England, and the British History Podcast, and even the Flat-Packed History of Sweden. Oh, and the Danish History Podcast, of course, the History of Poland Podcast, and the History of Italy, which is particularly fun. I love that guy's uh, little skits. And of course, we're going to be touching on Eastern Roman history again this time, so check out the History of Byzantium, which is just a classic in the genre. So, all that is to say, you've got a lot of options out there for different bits and pieces of the story. Of course, no one's going to tell it my way, which is why I'm still doing this. And you all seem to enjoy it, for some reason, so let us commence our speedrun of the Etonians. We left off two seasons ago with Otto I and Adelaide reigning in triumph, victorious over the Magyars and Berengar II alike. Otto's main base of support was in his home territory of Saxony, an area initially secured by Otto's father, Henry the Fowler. But Otto built on the work done by his father in building a coalition of the Germanic dukes by reintroducing an imperial ideology, based on that of Charlemagne. This ideology was strongly based in an alliance between the empire and the church, which he plied with lands and high positions in his bureaucracy in return for loyalty and power. On a related note, the relatively cultured Adelaide presided over a court known for its learning and artistic achievement, thus, you know, helping to cause the Etonian Renaissance, which you'll read about if you read about this stuff. For our purposes, it's not important, really. On this basis, and using his father's army, Otto conquered in all directions, receiving recognition as overlord from the Western Franks, achieving a favorable peace treaty with the Danes in the north, he saw off more than several revolts domestically, hammered the Slavs, and conquered northern Italy from his wife's nemesis, Berengar II. Otto forged a strong alliance with the Pope, and most importantly and famously of all, he fought the apocalyptic battle of Leschfield or Augsburg, in which he destroyed an army of invading Magyars and drove them out of Western Europe, never to be seen or heard from again, at least in Western Europe. Obviously in Hungary, they're still around. Anyway, this victory was made possible by the well-timed loyalty and arrival of one Conrad the Red, a cousin who had only recently been in revolt against Otto, but whose loyalty at this critical moment sealed the victory and whose tragic death in battle underscored the Christian nature of the triumph in the clerical sources. At least, you know, and especially the one sponsored by his heirs. But more on that next episode. Foreshadowing. Records from the clerical chroniclers of the time are heavily biased in favor of Otto, as you might expect when he was lavishing the church institutions with cash, but it is fair to say that Otto had some stellar achievements, and was widely respected by the educated people in the church and by the political classes in the aristocracy. This gave him certain leeway, such as involving himself with the elections of the popes in Rome. 
You see, the papacy at this point had become bogged down in a tug of war between its responsibility as the primate of the Western Church and as the bishopric of a medium-sized Italian city full of nobles who hated each other. Local politics led to numerous scandals in the papacy, leading to this period being called the pornocracy of the papacy, all of which sort of culminated in the rule of John XII, a notably demented figure whom Otto unceremoniously removed from office with some attendant slaughter of an aristocratic Roman mob. What's she gonna do? Ultimately, though, the truth of the matter was that Italy was an absolute mess by this point. Almost all power and institutional structure had been given away by the kings of Italy to the noble families, leaving the place nearly impossible to govern. Otto made three expeditions into Italy, and at the end of the last one, he basically just decided to camp out in Pavia until he could sort things out personally with his army. This led to some unpleasantness with the Eastern Roman Empire, as Otto expanded his control into central Italy, but ultimately this was resolved by the assassination of Emperor Nicephorus Phocas by the loyalists of the new emperor, John Simiskes. The emperor, the new one, John Simiskes, the, the emperor wanting some legitimacy and a secure flank, decided to get this by finally recognizing the western imperial title held by Otto, and uh, agreeing on some borders, and he sent them his niece as a gesture of goodwill. Theophanu was her name, and she came to cement the deal by marrying Otto's son, the appropriately named Otto II. Theophanu is an interesting character in her own right, in the legends of the period. She was regarded as a patron of the arts, and was applauded by the normally chauvinistic clerics for her work in making the court of the empire even more sophisticated. According to one story, she was the first person in Western Europe to champion the use of the fork at meals, though I never know what to make of such legends, and it would be several centuries before the fork actually caught on, so take that with a salt cellar. On the flip side of that same coin, chroniclers who disliked Theophanu accused her of being chatty and demeaning the court with uh, imported Greek fineries. This was probably not the majority opinion of the time, as uh, Europe at that time saw Byzantium as the height of Christian culture and fashion, and the bit about her being chatty is actually particularly interesting, so let's take a moment. She was a Greek princess, you will remember, in a German-speaking court. Now, there is going to be a lot of Latin flying around, but not a ton of Greek. I've not been able to confirm exactly what her linguistic status was in relation to the court. But the accusation of chattiness, if that has any basis in reality, it would have to make a modern observer even more impressed with Theophanu, because it means she must have learned German during and after her engagement, to such a high degree that she was able to annoy fun-hating monks. Or maybe they all just made it all up. Who knows? Editor's footnote. For my fellow German students in the audience, you'll notice that Greek and German share something together. A third gender for nouns. Das. In fact, all German words that are imported from Greek are actually using that third gender. Again, das. So what that signifies is the closeness of both German and Greek, which makes this either less impressive or signifies a close importation of Greek words into German. And, and maybe that says something about her importance in linguistic history. Who knows? I'm just spitballing here. Anyways, end podcast editor's footnote. Anyway, daughter-in-law aside... Otto I was a unique personality and ruler. It is rare for a ruler to really reach the end of their ambitions, to survive all their opponents, and leave a realm more or less at peace. But Otto I did exactly that. At the time of his death, no force in Europe dared to challenge him. 
as an example, when he led his family back to Germany from Italy, all of Germany, uh, the third time, I should say, all of Germany was kind of miffed at him because he'd been away for like 10 years. And that's just not how kingship was supposed to work. But the best way they could come up with for expressing their frustration to the emperor was to throw him an extraordinarily lavish party. Super passive aggressive, guys. Needless to say, when Otto I became ill and died at the ripe-for-the-time age of 60, surrounded by family and peacefully in his bed, the transition of power was remarkably smooth. In an age where empires were regularly subdivided amongst squabbling sons, or when kings had to go around proving themselves, Otto II simply became king, and everyone accepted it. He threw a 30-day funeral for his father, which everyone thought lived up to how popular the guy was, and then the nobility of Germany assembled and elected Otto as their next king-slash-emperor. To be fair, this was made easy because Otto was an adult who had been working as his father's stand-in in government for years, particularly when Otto I was in Italy, and as a bonus, was the only surviving son of the emperor anyway. So there wasn't much scope for controversy. That said, the empire inherited by Otto II was not what we would call stable or well-organized by modern standards, so there were some challenges here. While Otto II owned a lot of land around the empire, the political and practical basis of the empire remained more or less what it had been since the days of Henry the Fowler, a fairly loose alliance of the imperial family and the various noble clans that owned the duchies of the various regions of the empire. Now, I say clans advisedly here because the duchies were not monolithic political entities. For example, the imperial family's main power base was still in Saxony, but the main holdings there were overseen by a minor but trustworthy member of the Etonian family. So far, so feudal. This we would expect from any feudal landholding situation. But that said, there were still four or five other major families in Saxony, and a plethora of smaller ones, all of whom had to be kept content. Saxony had its own particular needs and concerns, beyond the handholding of the nobility. This notably revolved around their border with Denmark in the north and with the Wendish border in the east, which was just in a constant state of raid and counter-raid. So some member of the imperial family really needed to be there on hand at all times with a military to act as a military leader and ensure the proper dispersal of loot and all that stuff. But the thing is, similar situations pertained in each of the stem duchies. The local nobles were very concerned about their local problems, which involved balancing the interests of their own family and a handful of competing allied clans, while usually also seeing to border defenses and the aggressive pursuit of loot. To manage competing interests between the duchies and to maintain a calm between the various clans within the duchies, the emperor moved around between his properties in each of these duchies. So whenever I talk in the next few episodes about the court, you should understand that the court is already the kind of peripatetic system we discussed last episode. We should also say he took everybody on campaign with him half the time. So this was a mobile entity. Otto I had imposed, or at least encouraged, the growth of a parallel power structure in the duchies, personified by the church. The major clerics of the empire, which is to say the abbots and bishops, represented a different way for the emperor to keep track of what was happening in the duchies that was less subject to pressure from the nobility and who were literate and had the ability to project the emperor's message out into the hinterlands of the empire, all the stuff we've talked about before. The churches and monasteries were given huge tracts of land to buy their loyalty, but also to keep economic resources out of the hands of the noble dynasties. Now, a quick word about human resources. 
We are not yet at the point where the inheritance of these noble titles and lands is assumed and considered a sacrosanct point of law, but we are not far off. The emperors are still struggling to keep the power to remove dukes if they saw fit. Otto I had done this, but it often led to long-drawn-out conflicts with the offended family group. In this context, the bishops were a great option, because they could not form dynasties, but they could benefit dynasties. Which is to say, if Otto wanted to butter up a certain family group, he could request that one of their more churchy members be elected as abbot. The monks would oblige, since no one wanted to annoy the king, and the clan would be appropriately buttered, and they would get use of the abbey's lands for the lifetime of that family member. But if, after that abbot died, a different family needed to be buttered, they could have their turn, and the lands would then be under the care of a different family via their relative, the Abbot 2.0. As such, the church checked a whole lot of boxes for the Etonians, but a lot of this was based on tradition and unwritten agreements, so it was a balancing act that the entire court structure helped to balance. As we have discussed in previous episodes, a large part of the structure of the court was bound up in the women of the court and their role in the royal family, as advisors and as political players in their own right. Notably, you will recall Adelaide's pivotal role in the conquest of Italy, her role in the court politics of Otto I's reign in Italy, and her patronage of dozens upon dozens of convents, monasteries, and just educated individuals of both sexes. Well, as you all will recall, Otto II was Adelaide's son, and she was still alive and as vivacious as ever when her husband died, and so Otto II had the benefit of her counsel on his side. He also had the benefit of Theophanu, his wife. Though an arranged marriage, the reports from the chroniclers say that the two youngsters fell rather madly in love after the fact. This meant that the highly educated and cultured Greek princess, coming from the last bastion of Roman civilization and educated in the imperial palace, was able to bring her advice to bear on Otto II as well. She, too, rapidly began patronizing artists and religious establishments, building the family's patronage networks in the process, all while fulfilling the role of good wife and mother to the country. Unfortunately, as happens, the bride and her mother-in-law did not exactly see eye to eye. It isn't really clear what the source of the controversy was, Adelaide may well have just been envious of the influence Theophanu had over her husband, Adelaide's son, and felt her position at court was threatened. If that was the fear, her actions ended up being a rather self-fulfilling prophecy. Before Otto I died, apparently relations were already somewhat strained, but once Otto II was crowned king, the arguments got out of control. Ultimately, Otto II sided with his wife, confronted his mother, and the result of that confrontation was that Adelaide was exiled from court. But fear not, Adelaide fans, she will be back. She had merely gone for an extended vacation with her many relatives in Burgundy. Podcast footnote. You will sometimes see mixed depictions of Theophanu. Chroniclers described her as chatty and complained about how she brought fancy Greek fashion into the court. One accused her of having an affair with a future pope. But it's worth saying that Adelaide had many, if not all, of the chroniclers in her pocket. The fact that this was the extent of the complaints about Theophanu under these circumstances sort of speaks to her character, and also the moderation of Adelaide, I suppose. Most historians completely discount the story of her infidelity, as no other chronicler repeats it, and it seems extremely out of character for the person described in the later episodes when she becomes a very important person indeed. Also, any infidelity probably would have thrown into doubt the person of Otto III, spoilers, which, you know, Adelaide didn't want either. So 
My main source, Mr. Henderson, was of an age that remained credulous about these accusations against powerful women. Dr. Wickham is rather more highly evolved, and the Wikipedia entries on the subject reflect the more modern stance. And so that's my opinion. Uh, I don't think Theophanu had an affair with a cleric who became pope. End podcast footnote. Nonetheless, this domestic conflict between Otto II's mother and wife may be seen metaphorically as setting the tone for Otto II's reign, as more and more of the simmering conflicts that the power and prestige of Otto I had papered over began to emerge. First of these, and as I alluded to earlier, the Saxon nobles were feeling neglected. This was principally because Otto I had spent most of his final years in Italy, but now, under Otto II, it was felt, too, that his ties to his ancestral home were thin. Notably, the court included only one member of the Saxon nobility. This should just be seen as sort of a growing background noise. It doesn't necessarily result in anything right away. Speaking of Italy, the second major issue was that Otto I's favored papal candidate had just been deposed and murdered by an anti-pope selected by the Roman nobility around the time of Otto I's death. So that was a problem. Can't have people going around murdering popes. Finally, there were issues with Otto II's uncle, Henry II of Bavaria, and that ended up being the most pressing concern, so let's start there, in Bavaria. Henry II of Bavaria was the son of a figure you will all remember as Henry the Quarrelsome, Otto I's rather troublesome younger brother. Well, this is one of those tales where the sequel is basically the same story, but with the kids of the cast of the first movie so that they can hire cheaper, newer actors. Henry II is known to history as Henry the Wrangler, and I'm going to stick with that name if you don't mind for reasons that will be clear later. Henry the Wrangler continued the family tradition of wanting to take over the neighboring duchy of Swabia, amongst other things. Otto II continued the family tradition of not wanting any of the dukes of any of the duchies to control two duchies. I mean, obviously, come on, Henry, did you seriously think that was going to happen? Well, as it happens, he did, because the Duke of Swabia died without children shortly after Otto II's coronation, leaving a widow who was also Henry the Wrangler's sister. With the post vacant, Otto II got to pick the new duke, but from Henry II's standpoint, sorry, from Henry the Wrangler's standpoint, that should have been him. Apparently, Henry was all hanging around the court, I guess dropping broad hints like telling Otto how much he loved Swabia this time of year. In any case, Henry thought it was his by right and that it was in the bag. So you can probably imagine Henry's reaction when Otto gave the post to his cousin, the uncreatively named Otto of Swabia. Thankfully, who will not be showing up too much in today's episode because that would get confusing. Anyway, Otto of Swabia was sort of the son of the guy who had ruled Swabia before the guy who just died. This is sort of the kind of problem you get when you do reappoint dukes at, at will. But you know what? That, that part's not really that important. The point is that Otto II gave Swabia to someone else who had a legitimate claim and who was closer to the family tree to Otto I. And that made things very awkward at court. So Henry the Wrangler did the sane and rational thing for any border lord to do. He struck an alliance with the Poles and the Bohemians and raised a huge army with which to try to depose his nephew, Otto II. If he couldn't have Swabia, he would take the whole empire. Or that was the plan. What actually happened was that the wonderfully named Popo, Bishop of Würzburg, <laughs> Popo, Bishop of Würzburg, got wind of the conspiracy and just marched up to Henry and demanded that he stop this nonsense at once or be excommunicated. 
and Henry said he was very sorry, and he stopped conspiring and submitted meekly to arrest by Otto. This was in 974, by the way. You don't necessarily need to remember the dates. The, me putting the dates in is as much to keep things straight in my head. But if it helps you, 974. Henry the Wrangler probably expected some clemency because that was kind of a family tradition, but he was thrown in prison, which some people considered a bit harsh. But it, it can't have been that harsh because in 976, somehow Henry was back in Bavaria. Uh, it's not clear whether he escaped or if he was let out. But in either case, he went straight back and stirred up another revolt, for realsies this time. He also had the support of some Saxon nobles, as well as some of the nobility in Swabia, but not the leadership of Poland or Bohemia. At least not explicitly, not this time. In any case, Otto II invaded Bavaria and easily crushed Henry the Wrangler's army at Regensburg. This forced Henry to flee, and he fleed to the Bohemians, which made Otto angry at the Bohemians. Before he went to deal with that, Otto II totally reorganized the duchies in southern Germany, splitting the very, very large duchy of Bavaria up into three pieces, and putting the remaining rump of Bavaria under the rule of his cousin, Otto of Swabia, and giving the other two chunks to other people. I believe I covered this in the Central European Walking Tour episode, if you want to go way back. The map isn't ready yet, but it will be soonish. I am working on that. I'm at Eastern Europe at the time of recording, in the process of getting those maps together, if anyone's interested. With that cleanup done, and the area sort of safely in the control of Otto of Swabia, who he trusted implicitly, and with the other two chunks of Bavaria being given to two other people, between 976 and 978, Otto II went back to dealing with Henry, the Wrangler, who had gone to Bohemia. So Otto II went to Bohemia to try and conquer Henry out of their hands. But when he left, Bavaria kept revolting for Henry, so he would sort of have to keep bouncing back and forth for a couple of years. Ultimately, he was successful, and he called a diet to oversee the conclusion of the rebellion. The kings of Bohemia and Poland attended the diet and swore loyalty to Otto II. Henry the Wrangler was thrown back in prison, for realsies this time, and his son, also named Henry, was sent to a church school, apparently with the intention of forcing him into the church. It didn't quite take, but we will get back to the Henrys. A big part of why the revolt in Bavaria took so long to suppress is that, like his father, Otto II couldn't focus his efforts in just one direction. In 974, when the whole thing with Henry the Wrangler was bubbling up, Otto received word that the Danes had invaded Saxony. Otto took an army to meet them and was defeated, but the Danes were just trying to go home at that point anyway, so they left with their loot. Otto kind of followed them north and repaired some border fortifications between turning his attention back to Bavaria. Once Bavaria was pacified, Otto II and Theophanu needed a serious break, and so they went to the one part of the empire furthest from any Danes or Slavs or people named Henry. They went to Lotharingia, the least Henry place in the empire. Sadly, this vacation did not go well. Now, the background to all this is just too complicated and silly to really get into, but suffice it to say that in our timeline here, while Otto was ruling the most powerful and cohesive political entity in Europe, the remnants of the Carolingian family line, remember the Carolingians? <laughs> the remnants of the Carolingian family line were still clinging on to power in West Francia. West Francia and East Francia had more or less stuck to their corners ever since Arnulf had deposed Charles the Fat, but they had also never really resolved the long-standing dispute over who ruled Lotharingia, which, if you remember back to the Walking Tour episodes, 
Well, Thuringia was that middle bit, essentially now where we have the Low Countries, Alsace-Lorraine, that sort of middle corridor area. Well, they had never resolved it to a point that everyone was happy with, at least. This left the nobility of Lotharingia able to switch sides based on what was better for them. This will become a theme, but a sort of pause in this switching had been caused by the reign of Otto I, who came through with the strongest army north of the Danube and tore stuff up. Uh, ever since the beginning of his reign, the Etonians had basically been in charge, albeit with a little bit of a merry-go-round of dukes who were ruling the region locally. There were issues with loyalty, and there were also issues with their attempts to reconcile the many, many local feuds. In any case, in 978, when Otto II and Theophanu were looking for a place to relax after crushing Henry the Wrangler for good, they thought, they thought the old imperial capital at Aachen in Lorraine would be a pleasant spot, far from anyone named Henry, as I said. But this was not how the king of West Francia, Lothair, saw the situation. As it happened, Otto II had put a duke in charge of Lotharingia that Lothair had a personal feud with because the Carolingian kings of West Francia had been reduced to petty feuding by this time, and also that guy had a claim on the West Francian throne, and now this occupation of what he saw as his family's ancestral capital and what should have been his land right near the border was just too much. So while Otto and Theophanu experimented with new forms of tableware in one of their many luxurious palace rooms, listening to plays and without their army around, Lothair raised his own army that was fairly large for Western Frankian standards and moved swiftly to the border. They moved so swiftly, in fact, that they were almost on top of Aachen before anyone realized what was happening. As a result, Otto and Theophanu had to beat a somewhat inglorious retreat Lothair then did the sane and long-sighted thing for someone who was trying to conquer Lotharingia. He looted his ancestral capital, hung insulting flags on the walls, and told everyone in the area how tough he was, and proved it with some more looting. Then, he went home, satisfied for some reason that he had made a point of some kind. Of course, what he really did was make Lotharingia hate him, and also, incidentally, the emperor of the largest, most stable, and most powerful political entity north of the Danube really, really super-duper hate him. So Otto raised a genuinely enormous army, invaded West Francia, sending Lothair into hiding, and looted the living daylights out of the northeast of the country, before eventually deciding the whole thing was too expensive and heading home. In fact, the only people in West Francia who put up any resistance at all were the forces under Hugh Capet an extremely popular noble of non-Carolingian descent who held Paris against Otto and then attacked Otto's rearguard and looted his baggage train. Spoilers, the descendants of Hugh Capet will eventually put the Carolingian dynasty out of its misery, but that's an issue for another time. For today, suffice it to say that Otto felt he had made his point, everyone signed a peace treaty and went back to their corners for the rest of Otto II's reign. Podcast footnote. The one other thing to say about this little incident is that it turns out that Lothair's wife was actually Otto's sister, which is only important because Adelaide actually threw her support behind Lothair at the start of this incident, which I'm sure was really helpful in healing the rift in the family. End podcast footnote. This left one last direction for Otto to deal with. He had dealt with the north, the east, and now he needed to deal with the south, which is to say Italy. Things in Italy had been more or less managed by Otto I's man on the ground, one Pandolf Ironhead, whose main policy in Italy had been an expansion of his and the Empire's territory into the south. This included taking over Spoleto, amongst a number of other places. Hi, Spoleto. 
Pendulph had also backed up imperial policy in disposing of the antipope who had murdered the pope back in the beginning of the section, though this was actually done by an imperial missy. Those guys are back. Do you remember them? Uh, I don't know if I mentioned them. The imperial missy were like imperial messengers who had all sorts of powers, kind of like a federal marshal in a Western movie, sort of. That kind of thing. In any case, Pandolf and this federal marshal had uh, taken care of the anti-pope and put the pope back in charge, and then he died. Anyway, the imperial representative had then overseen an apparently more legitimate election of a different pope, and things went back and forth from there. So this sort of situation was at least copacetic. But unfortunately, in 981, Pandolf Ironhead died. His lands were partitioned amongst his sons, and they commenced a murdering. This left imperial control in Italy in tatters. Meanwhile, in the East Roman Empire, the Tsimiskis dynasty, of whom Theophanu was a member, had been overthrown again by the Macedonian dynasty, which had come back. You don't need to know what that means, other than Theophanu did not like the new rulers of the empire, and the old alliance that she was supposed to represent was now gone. This all meant that all the peace treaties between the empire's territories in southern Italy were, you know, gone, and everyone was fair game. The Eastern Roman properties had never moved against the Etonian forces in the area, however, because they were too busy fighting against the Saracens that ruled Sicily. So in the power vacuum, a variety of Lombard duclets had arisen in the territory between the Eastern Roman holdings and the Papal States, and commenced a fighting amongst themselves. Italian history really is fun, and I missed this, you guys. Anyway, so in 979, the Roman mob tried to murder the Pope again, and he fled to ask for help. Having mopped up pretty much everything north of the Alps, Otto II and his army did the right thing, from their perspective, I guess, and rolled on south. Otto did the now familiar thing of marching a huge army into Rome with his friend the Pope in tow, and very threateningly pretend everything was fine. It had always been fine, right? I would hate if anything wasn't fine. And so would my army of German barbarians. From there, Otto moved on south, bringing the Lombard princes onto his side with a combination of military threat, actual force, and recognizing their claims as legitimate, but as loyal vassals of the empire. With this strategy and his huge army, Otto went way into southern Italy. The Eastern Romans were not best pleased, especially when he began besieging their cities. In response, the Eastern Romans made an alliance with the Saracens, who came over to mainland Italy on a Byzantine fleet and attacked Otto. In the ensuing series of battles, Otto's army first inflicted several minor defeats on the Saracens before a major battle happened where they killed the emir and then were surrounded and horribly slaughtered. Otto escaped the slaughter by swimming out to a passing Eastern Roman boat, on which a friendly local Italian recognized him, but talked his crewmates into thinking that he was just a common soldier, and so they dropped him off at a nearby friendly port. Luckily, Theophanu and Otto's infant son managed to escape in a more traditional and less exciting manner. At this point, a whole bunch of stuff kind of happened, almost at once. Otto and his remaining forces fell back into northern Italy and had a diet. At the Diet, they decided on a military strategy for continuing the war in southern Italy. He also dealt with some domestic politics, rearranging the dukes in southern Germany again, and importantly, appointing a descendant of Conrad the Red to rule Swabia. Hi, Conrad the Red. Do you remember Conrad the Red? I mentioned him at the beginning of the episode, but he was the guy who uh, died at the Battle of Lechfield. So, watch this space. 
he's back in charge of something. Now, Otto II's son, named Otto III, was crowned king despite being a baby. And then a messenger arrived telling Otto about the Great Slav Revolt. And also the Pope died. Wait, so the Great Slav Revolt, we should talk about that, is basically what it says on the tin. All the Slavs in the empire, which was a good chunk of the territory between sort of the bottom of Denmark and just over towards Poland, just kind of a big swath of territory, basically everyone in there rose up in revolt. And with the Imperial Army away, there wasn't anyone to stop them, really. The Empire's borders just dropped back to where they were at the start of Otto I's reign, and that was kind of that. This was not good. But the Pope thing had to be dealt with first. So Otto went to Rome with his army and selected, or suggested strongly to the people and clergy of Rome, that they elect his candidate, which they did. Then in 983, a malaria outbreak happened and Otto II died, which was inconvenient. Well, it was inconvenient for most people in the empire, but not for Henry the Wrangler. With Otto II dead and Otto III a three-year-old, Henry made the point that he was now the closest male relative to Otto III and should serve as the boy's regent. A few bishops went along with this at first, and Henry was able to, one, walk out of prison, and two, secure the boy's person. Theophanu, who was still in Italy, and Adelaide, still in exile, both complained loudly about this in letters, and they took with them the loyalty of basically all the women in court and the church, so all the abbesses. But at the moment, they were scattered and not really able to do anything about the situation. Had Henry the Wrangler played things cool, he might have been in a very good position to secure power for himself. But he immediately began screwing things up. The first thing he did was ally himself with Lothair, promising Lotharingia in return for Western Frankish support for Henry taking the crown for himself. Apparently. This is what the chroniclers say. I, I wonder if there's some timeline confusion here. But anyway, their armies came close to meeting, but then Henry chickened out at the last minute and went to Saxony. Lothair shrugged his shoulders and just began looting German territory. So, as fires raged in the background, Henry rocked up with Otto III in tow and began, you know, suggesting to some of the Saxon princes that Henry maybe could be the co-king with Otto III. Or maybe just have Henry the Wrangler be king. How about that? That'd be, that'd be pretty cool, right? Henry got some lukewarm support and resumed traveling around with Otto in tow, looking for more support. Notably, he went to his old stomping grounds in southern Germany. But the new dukes and nobles of southern Germany had been given their jobs by Otto II, so that was going to be a no from them. And then he went to Franconia, the traditional seat of the Conradins, and once a very rebellious province. But no, they said no also. And that was awkward, because that was pretty much Henry out of options. And so it was in 985 that Henry the Wrangler gave Otto III's regency up to the ladies of the court in return for getting his old duchy back. There was a bit of old musical duchy chairs to make room for everyone, but in the end, Henry the Wrangler got his duchy back, the other dukes were more or less happy, and Henry the Wrangler was able to call his son, Henry, out of the church school where he'd been living, and back to living with his father. All this will be important. Otto III was also back. Back in court with Theophanu, and the many abbesses of the court, and Adelaide. Hi, Adelaide. Adelaide and Theophanu don't seem to have ever really liked each other necessarily, as I said before, but this brush with near disaster seems to have forced the two women to put aside their differences and form an alliance of sorts, at the very least. 
In this alliance, Theophanu was the leading figure for now, as she was actually the mother of Otto III, and Adelaide seems to have reconciled to this reality. But Adelaide was there, and she was a strong force in court, and brought a huge amount of legitimacy and political connections with her. As a result, Theophanu's reign was one of internal peace and stability, an achievement that probably took every ounce of effort from the two women, but which is praised by all the chroniclers of the time. Otto III had already been crowned as emperor, but in 986, the court made a point of gathering the main dukes into an assembly and having them enact homage to the boy, acting as servants at his feast. This was actually a tradition that went back to Otto I, and it showed that the dukes were enthusiastically in support of the boy king, which, to be fair, they probably were. Theophanu took an active part in mediating various political conflicts around the empire, in which capacity chroniclers of the time praised her wisdom and force of character. Again, in the circumstances of the times, plus the chroniclers being under the employ of a rival, this praise speaks volumes. It also may suggest that Adelaide and Theophanu really did sort of patch things up to some extent. It is also probable that Theophanu was ruling by consensus, and in active consultation with the dukes. The dukes would have liked this, but it also would have somewhat loosened imperial control. Against this, we should also acknowledge that the upper clergy were very strongly in support of the regency, and were rewarded as such. In any case, no one disputes that Theophanu did a stellar job at managing the regency, which is historically an almost suicidally difficult task to take on. Unfortunately, Theophanu died in 991. At that point, Otto was 11, and was starting to undertake an active role as emperor, but it was still a tad too young to take over full imperial responsibilities, even for the Middle Ages. So Adelaide, who was still kicking, yay Adelaide, stepped in as regent. She is reported to have taken some joy in surviving her daughter-in-law, in many quotes, which is not impossible, but I would hope that she'd be past the resentment at that point. In any case, Adelaide continued to administer the empire as regent for her grandson until 995. Even after her retirement from her regency, Adelaide remained a forceful and important political figure in the empire. Her close alliance with the church saw her champion the reformers of the Cluniac school, something that would be very important, and she remained, even after her retirement, an active force in the politics of the empire. Her death is actually emblematic of this. In 999, her nephew, Robert of Burgundy, was facing down a rebellion. Adelaide took it upon herself to travel to Burgundy to assist her nephew in his precarious situation, but unfortunately died on the way in a convent rest stop. Once she was canonized a few decades later, this convent became a pilgrimage site, and so she died as she lived, in service to her family, the empire, and the church. By this point, however, Otto III had fully taken over rule of the empire. In 992, the ongoing loss of Slavic territories combined with Viking raids to make it necessary for the young king to lead an army in his first field campaign. It did not go well. King Teenager suffered a bad defeat from the combined Viking and Slav armies. He came back a few years later with an allied Polish army, for reasons we will get to in a second, and he did much better, but he only really retook a few possessions. Basically, this just shored up that border. In Italy, things were even less copacetic. The death of Otto II had happened at a really delicate moment after a major military defeat. And now, with the empire in turmoil and struggling to maintain a regency north of the Alps, there was just no way to send another army to recoup their losses after the disastrous battle against the Saracens. This power vacuum was filled by the Roman nobility, who formed an alliance with Lombard princes and Byzantine generals to march on Rome, imprison Otto II's favored pope, let the antipope back in, 
and set up one Crescentius II, a Roman strongman, as the de facto ruler of central Italy. Crescentius spent the regency pretending to work in the name of the king, while slowly expanding his power. This strikes me as the kind of thing Henry the Wrangler should have done if he wasn't quite so Henry the Wrangler. In any case, by 996, Otto III was ready to reassert his authority in Italy. While he didn't make it to Rome this time, he did enter Italy with a sizable army and had himself crowned as the King of the Italians, or the King of the Lombards, I should say, and given all the honors necessary to reassert his symbolic power. He also sent an expedition on to install his personal chaplain, a noted church reformer named Bruno, as Pope Gregory V. Then, he held a synod where he pronounced punishments on all those who had supported the rebellions against legitimate popes, from his point of view, of the previous decade. Otto was notably not married by this point, and so it was Gregory who fulfilled the good cop role at this synod. Which is to say, Otto was all like, I'm going to kill that guy, and Gregory came out pleading that he be allowed to start his reign as pope with clemency and Christian mercy. And so all the conspirators were more or less let off the hook, while their political functions were filled by people loyal to Otto. At that point, Otto III had to go fight the Slavs some more, and he left Italy, at which point the Roman nobles rose in revolt and forced Gregory to flee Rome. So this is going good. Unfortunately for Crescentius II and his pals, the action against the Slavs was not a very long one, and by 998, the German-Roman imperial army was back in Rome. The nobles fled to their tower forts in the city, which were then individually besieged and captured one by one by Otto, which is something that previous people had not thought to do, I guess. Crescentius was executed and his body left to decay in public. I believe, but I am not sure, that it is around this time that Otto learned something disturbing. Somehow, Otto heard some early whispers that the donation of Constantine might be a forgery. This document, which is an obvious forgery from our point of view today, had been used for a century or so by the papacy to argue that they should have independent authority to rule central Italy based on a donation of land and power from Constantine the Great, Roman Emperor. By the time of Otto III, the German emperors of the Romans had figured out or been told that this document was super fake, and so Otto entirely revoked the secular power of the popes at this time, leaving a few underlings in charge of the city. Then Otto went north again for some more ultimately fruitless Slav bashing. This time, things in Italy stayed more or less stable for a little while. While north of the Alps, uh, in between bashing Slavs, Otto III decided to cede to his alliances with the Poles and the Bohemians. These were sort of peace treaty alliance, frenemy kinds of situations. He, he managed to get the Poles to come over to his side and help fight the Wendish Slavs, as I said before. But one notable aspect of this that really solidified the alliance is a story that I've mentioned a little bit in previous episodes, but I'm going to tell more or less in full now, which is the story of St. Adalbert. So our Adalbert was a bishop from Poland. Uh, and he went to Old Prussia to convert the pagans. There, he gained martyrdom by being horribly killed. Also, miracles happened, I guess? The king of Poland, who was a friend of Adalbert's, bought the body back from the Prussians for its weight in gold, and set it up in a shrine in the city of Niezno. For reasons too minute for our purposes, Otto III and Boleslaw of Poland both wanted Adalbert recognized as a saint. This was done in the year 1000. This was a big occasion, and to celebrate, the King of Poland invited Otto III and Boleslaus of Bohemia to come for a visit. So they went to visit the shrine, which was given a huge facelift for the occasion by Boleslaw of Poland, and Boleslaw, 
who was the progenitor of a new dynasty, took this occasion to schmooze the pants off of Otto, who was so blown away by the lavishness of the festivities that he recognized Boleslaw as king and an equal partner in the empire. He also made a new archbishopric and moved some people around just so everyone knew who the first among equals was, and then went back home to Germany. Interestingly, Boleslaw and Boleslaus went with him, and they visited some saints' relic sites in Germany, so it was just like a fun road trip for the bros. After waving goodbye to his new bestie, Otto went back to Italy for a visit. He restored the Pope's secular authority after this sort of trial period, but it was under the overlordship of the empire. And then he dropped dead of malaria. This was most inconvenient, as Otto was only 21 years old and of a very religious disposition. He had not rushed to get married and had no children. In fact, he had really very few male relations at all. Even the women of the court had mostly died by this point, and in fact, the only male relation that anyone could think of was Henry the Wrangler's kid? No one liked this. The Etonian family was not happy, and the dukes were super unhappy. They had fought against this guy's dad and granddad more times than anyone could count, and now he was going to be emperor? But the reality was that there was basically no one else with a really strong claim, so... So it was Henry. Confusingly, this guy is known as Henry II, just like his father, Henry II of Bavaria. Which is why I called that guy Henry the Wrangler, and I will call this guy Emperor Henry II. Cool? Cool. Cool, 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 cool. 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 Where was I? Oh, Henry II. As you might imagine, the first few years of his reign were not exactly productive. Herman of Swabia refused to recognize Henry and went into rebellion. Not strong enough to deal with this himself, Henry spent a whole bunch of time touring the empire and gathering support from the grumpy and resigned nobility. Ultimately, Henry led a force of less than enthusiastic nobles against Herman and won in 1002. He also had to face a rebellion from a rival clan in Bavaria, which was wiped out fairly quickly. Meanwhile, in Italy, everything had gone to hell again. There was a new self-proclaimed king of Italy, and an anti-archbishop in Milan, and anyway, Henry rocked up and easily beat the antis, had himself crowned king of Italy at Pavia, and, after a hilarious misunderstanding with the locals, his soldiers slaughtered several thousand individuals. Then they went home, resolving nothing. Even the uh, self-proclaimed king of Italy was still banging around, but kind of confined to a little corner. In Eastern Europe, things went even worse. Boleslaw of Poland and Boleslaus of Bohemia had been charmed by Otto III and had become strong friends and allies, but the disputed succession threw all that in the trash. Rather than support Henry the Wrangler's kid, they kept throwing their support between various different candidates until they ran out of candidates, and ultimately war was the only option. But before that could happen, Boleslaus was deposed by an internal revolt in Bohemia, and the Bohemian nobles invited Boleslaw to intervene, which he did by staging a coup d'etat and taking over Bohemia, making Poland a huge threat on the eastern border of the Germanic Roman Empire. Just to make things clear, then Poland invaded German territory and burned down a castle, which is the kind of thing you do when you want to inform someone that you don't like them, and it is generally seen as rude. Henry raised an army and marched east, embarking on the first of three Polish wars that would basically take up the largest single period of his reign, from 1002 to 1018. Fascinating, as this war undoubtedly is for scholars of medieval military history, it has few charms for us today, which is itself kind of worthy of note, 
Despite 16 years of plundering and violence, the war seems to have not contributed to any material changes in the domestic political structure of the empire, and what border changes did occur were minuscule when set against the treasure, blood, and time spent in the cause. Practically the only thing of historic relevance to us is that Jaromir, the younger brother of the Bohemian king Bolaklau, who had shown up at some point, ended up retaking Bohemia with German assistance. In return, he agreed to rule as a duke instead of a king, and rule as Henry II's vassal. This will be seen by later observers as a significant development later down the road, as the status of Bohemia within the empire becomes something of a problem of epic significance. But at this point, it was a minor concession at best. At the end of the war, Boleslaw of Poland also agreed to be a vassal, though he retained his title of king. The ability of the empire to practically project power into Bohemia or Poland remained real, but basically very limited, and equally so between the two political entities. So the political fiction of vassaldom or non-vassaldom only became an issue due to later developments. And now, we move on. This brings us back to Italy. Again. As soon as Henry II became involved in Northern European affairs, the nobles rose up and tried to reassort local control over Rome and its territories. This time, it was one John Crescentius who took de facto power, ruling through several popes before one of them ran to Henry for assistance. The timing ended up being somewhat impeccable, as Henry had just signed the ceasefire that ended the Second Polish War, and the Third Polish War had not yet kicked off. And so Henry gathered his usual army, but pointed them south this time. Once again, all the local resistance melted away, a few key individuals were captured, but nothing else seems to have changed, and they marched into Rome. The Pope crowned Henry as emperor this time, and then Henry went back to the north, in time for the Third Polish War to kick off. This may have been a little bit premature, because while northern and central Italy would be quiet for a while, in southern Italy things were changing, and it had all kicked off with the death of Otto II. The collapse of the German Roman Empire's fortunes in southern Italy created a space for the resurgent Eastern Roman Empire, now under Basil II, to expand their holdings and fortify their hold. The Lombard princes, alarmed by this expansion, did the time-honored southern Italian thing in the situation and hired random passing pilgrims as mercenaries. The Pope was somewhat involved in this, but suffice it to say that a bunch of guys from an area called Normandy rocked up with big horses and lances and big suits of armor and they had lots of friends and relatives who were looking for good business opportunities. Soon, the Lombard dukes, with a very large contingent of Norman allies, were able to create a united army to push back against the Eastern Romans. But even with the Normans helping out, they actually couldn't face the Eastern Roman Empire in this period, and the army was defeated. The Lombards went to the Pope and asked him for help. The Pope wasn't thrilled at the idea of an Eastern Roman reconquest, so the Pope went to Henry, and wouldn't you know it, by now we're in the year 1022, and the Polish wars have been over for a little while, and Henry II is looking for a new fun project. So he raised a huge army, which broke into several very large armies that streamed down the various passes from northern to southern Italy, compelling loyalty as they went. When they got to southern Italy, they reformed into one enormous army, and found that the eastern Romans refused to offer pitched battle. Which was not ideal, as the German troops of Henry II rapidly became ill in the unfamiliar climate. Also, we should probably say that camp hygiene wasn't the best, because it was a medieval army, and the logistics of the Middle Ages being what they were, and southern Italy not being known as the most fertile area overall, 
Starvation was probably a factor here, and so the slightly less huge army stomped around on a few Lombard princes and then headed back north, leaving the Byzantines in the ascent and the Lombards more in need of Roman mercenaries than ever. Watch this space. Let us pause for a moment to discuss Henry II's domestic policies. In some ways, they are extremely unremarkable. There are no stunning new law codes or changes in direction, though he certainly had a lot of diets where he proclaimed laws. Rather, Henry's changes were matters of degree. The Etonians had always relied on an alliance with the church to counterbalance the power of the nobility, a group that was never sure they wanted to be in the empire at all. Henry was faced with an ever more independent-minded nobility, a group who did not really want him to be king, and basically let him continue to be king because he managed to avoid any major mistakes. Henry, who was religiously inclined anyway due to his youth spent in a church school, was thus very much encouraged to put his faith in the church, so to speak. Henry doubled down on giving land to the church, investing in church building programs, and installing earnest reform-minded cluniacs in key church posts. But Henry wasn't just dropping friendly bishops in places and then piling them with bags of cash. Henry was an extremely devout person by basically every account and measure, and it was clear to most pious people at the time that the church had some issues from an ideological standpoint. In the past, I've mentioned the Cluniac reformers and their patronage by court women. Well, Henry took this a step further, putting Cluniac reformers on the papal throne itself and allying with the Pope to impose key reforms on the church and the empire. Reforms like enforcing clerical celibacy, banning the sale of church offices, and generally enforcing existing canon law. Now, this wasn't universally applied, but it pushed things further and made these more normal. Most importantly for our story, Henry began not only giving the church lands to run as landlords to get an income, but began giving bishops entire counties to rule as the equivalent of major secular lords. The bishops were given the title of Prince of the Realm, and now had strong secular administrative roles. These titles were assigned to the office of bishop, not to the man who held the office or their family, so again, this put a lot of imperial power in the hands of bishops because they couldn't establish dynasties, as I've said before. And of course, this worked out nicely because, of course, Henry picked, I mean, was strongly consulted about who got to be bishop and abbot. And anyway, the church liked his picks, so there was no problem, right? Watch the space. There would be a plethora of consequences to Henry's actions here, and his rule really was, in retrospect, a key divergence point in the relations between the empire and the papacy. We will get to most of those consequences later, but there is one more key factor that I have not yet mentioned in this episode that I need to highlight somewhere in here, and this seems as good a spot as any. With all semblance of central or even regional power being heavily degraded by two centuries of invasions, coups, conquests, civil wars, succession disputes, and the empire rolling in every now and again, power in Italy was shifting out of the hands of regional strongmen. Some, to be sure, still existed, notably in Tuscany, in Spoleto, Benevento, and in the Eastern Roman territories in southern Italy. But for at least a century, the maritime city-states of Venice, Salerno, Naples, Gaeta, and Amalfi had been rising in economic and political power. To their ranks, we can now add Genoa, Milan, and a, just a plethora of other smaller cities who began to flex major economic and political muscles. Genoa, in particular, had thrown off external rule by any individuals and had founded a republic, whose institutions were copied by the already existing maritime cities, as well as other inland cities, who had begun to assert their independence. I should note, it's not that the nobility were kicked out by a bunch of sans-culottes. Far from it. 
Rather, this was a case where the small and medium nobility, who gathered in urban clans, saw an advantage in cooperating and escaping the control of the major aristocratic regional nobles. The power of the nobility in Italy's cities would remain important for many years yet, but it would be broken eventually. All that is to say, as canon law became more important for the day-to-day functioning of the church and empire, there began to be a growing demand for canon lawyers. For now, this was served on an ad hoc basis, but eventually a real educational institution would be needed to fill this void. And that would be very important for the Italian city-states, so watch the space. Secondly, these increasingly independent city-states did not want to fall back under the control of local strongmen, and at this point they tended to view the emperor as a counterbalance against such an eventuality, because every time one showed up, the emperor would roll in and break up their power. As such, the city-states tended to ally with the emperors in their various marches through Italy. Which brings us back to Henry, marching through southern Italy, stomping on local strongmen, but without adequate supply lines or camp hygiene. With his army dropping around him, Henry headed north, back to Germany. Somewhere along the way, he began to suffer from a urinary tract infection, and in 1024 he died. Unlike Otto III, Henry was a solid middle age at the time of his death, and had actually married. Unfortunately, it seems that some of the schooling he'd received in the church school as a child had rubbed off. I I may be overselling this. Some chroniclers at the time said that the extremely pious Henry had remained celibate with his wife. This is disputed by modern historians, but it's a story that was plausible enough to earn him a sainthood. Though, again, modern historians will tell you that the only thing we can say for sure is that the marriage was childless. As you will recall, he was the last of the Etonians with any kind of clear claim to the throne, so this was really a major problem. Henry left the empire as stable and peaceful as it had been, possibly since Otto I, but he had not left an heir, and key components of his policy had never been codified. For example, the practice of the king appointing bishops, commanding their forces in battle, and having a major say in religious doctrine was new in terms of the degree, and it was something with a basis that didn't rest in canon law but in custom and tradition. The bishops, swimming in cash and with powerful new titles, were not complaining, and they thought Henry was great, but the system remained a tradition and not a rule. So it was in this context, with the empire stable militarily but containing many serious political contradictions, that the nobles gathered in what is now called Oppenheim in an attempt to elect the new king of the Germans and emperor of the Romans. This would not be an easy task, but that is a problem for next episode. In today's episode, I managed to speedrun the entire Etonian dynasty without things getting too ridiculously long. First, we recapped the later life of Otto I. Then we saw Otto II try to emulate and better his father. Despite a lot of work and winning most of his battles, Otto II died just after two major setbacks, namely the disastrous Battle of Stillo in southern Italy and the Great Slav Rising in the north. Luckily, Otto II had a son. Less luckily, that son was three years old. Henry the Wrangler escaped from prison and tried to take the throne, but absolutely no one was on his page here, which made things super awkward. He decided to cut his losses and regain control of Bavaria and his son in exchange for giving Otto III back to his mother. The subsequent regency was a decade of stability maintained by the sheer determination and will of Theophanu and Adelaide, Otto II's widow and Otto the Great's widow, respectively. That said, no progress was made at this time against any of the empire's challenges, be it in terms of the domestic independence of the nobility, the Slavic uprising, or the resurgent Eastern Romans in Italy. 
In fact, it's very likely that the ladies of the court were only able to hold things together by working through the Dukes of the Empire, which may have increased their independence somewhat. When Otto III took over, things did not start out well, as he was defeated by a combined Slavic and Viking army. Much of his rule was spent consolidating the empire's holdings in Italy and stabilizing the border with the Slavs. His only major policy innovation came in his relations with the empire's neighbors in Poland and Bohemia. In short, after a joint road trip to see some relics, Otto, Boleslaw, and Boleslaus were best buds forever and ready to take on the world. Then Otto III died, and the empire was taken over by Henry the Wrangler's kid, Henry, the last person in the empire with a really strong claim to the throne, but someone whose dad and granddad were hated by basically everyone. No one was happy about this, most of all Otto III's super bros in Poland and Bohemia. A massive 16-year war started, thus undoing Otto III's biggest policy initiative. Henry II also failed to make any serious progress in Italy, though he probably did consolidate the empire's rule in the north somewhat. Henry II's biggest policy initiatives involved bringing the empire even more close to the church, giving bishops more secular powers, and becoming involved in church doctrine. Then he died without an heir. The later Etonians, as a group, were not bad kings. Probably no one could have replaced Otto I, and they didn't do anything to fix any of these sort of long-simmering problems, but it would be a while before these problems really unwound the empire to any serious extent. So it's fair to say that they, we can't hold Henry II responsible for the investiture controversy in any real sense. They all made sensible policy decisions given what they had to work with. They weren't idiots. They were just sort of death-prone and not air-prone which contributes to the worsening problems of the empire in small but noticeable ways. We will see the results of that in the next episode, but for today, that's it. Thanks so much for listening, and be sure to tune in next time for an exceedingly salient episode of Wittenberg to Westphalia, Wars of the Reformation. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs> 